Welcome to impactboom.org. We search the globe to find the people, stories, ideas, and inspiration to help you create maximum positive impact. Each week, Impact Boom brings you thought-provoking interviews with world-leading practitioners passionate about creating positive social change. These designers, social entrepreneurs, educators, innovators, thinkers, and doers share their projects, initiatives, thoughts, and insights on creating a better world. You can find all the stories, links, and other great content at impactboom.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter for the latest updates, or subscribe to the newsletter or on iTunes. Thanks for listening to episode 71 of Impact Boom. My name's Tom Allen, and I'm passionate about bringing you the latest interviews and insights to help you create positive social impact. Today, we're speaking with David Carniel. Since graduating from QT, David has been exploring avenues to continue to connect his passion for social policy and urban environments. After honing his skills as a craftsman in the construction and manufacturing industries, David took to his newly established design skills to Munich, where he worked in the Digital Connected Services Innovation Lab at BMW. David is now looking to put his strong multidisciplinary design skills to work, bringing digital innovation into the urban art and product design space. So on today's podcast, we'll discuss David's Stone Surfboards project and what is learnt about what's required for a more sustainable surf industry. We'll talk about a range of projects David's been involved in and we'll get David's take on design education and what he believes can be done to get students effectively tackling social and environmental issues. So David, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Tom. David, to kick things off, could you please share a bit about your background in design and what led you to working on the Stoned Surfboards project? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I started after leaving school. I uh, went into urban design and planning. I was looking more at how people interacted with urban spaces and looking at sort of the social behaviours that you could recognise amongst people and how you could design things in order to shape how people move through spaces or interact in common social areas. Hmm. So that was sort of my first direction after leaving school and alongside of that I was um, doing tiling as a tradesman which has been great for me as far as working out how to build things, how to design things with whatever constraints whichever client I'm working for yeah. has. So it was a constant sort of learning how to work with people and finding common ground and finding successful results essentially. Hmm. Um, so that was basically the foundation of where what got me to industrial design and then I was visiting Melbourne at the time and met a guy that basically had a 3D printed torso back in 2010 which wow. was the start of 3D printers and mm. that was the, the moment where I'm like hang on a minute this is this is what I want to do so I um, left Melbourne came back to QUT and started this degree basically. Um, I've always made things in the backyard, the backyard sheds where I lived basically. Tutoring. Yeah it was with limited materials too, so there was always scrap stuff around the yard and stuff, so I had to make, make do with the stuff that was there. I didn't mm. have money to go buy new timber, new metal or whatever, yep. so it was always those challenges of what you could do with what was around, mm. um, which I think was one of the best things for me, getting through design and learning about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and after that, I applied for an internship at BMW in Munich and went over there and worked in a different area. So it was a lot more in the digital side of things, which is a space where I didn't expect to be straight away. But yeah. after spending time there, I've just seen the value it can add to projects, especially with new tech and 
you always seem to be chasing the next advancement in tech and stuff, and you think it's moving so so quickly, but it only takes a little step back, and you can actually start to see it, and it's not moving as quickly as first thought, and you can actually start to use it and incorporate it in projects. Mm. Which has led me to, I came back and finished my degree, and all graduated now, and ready to go down to Melbourne to try and chase some work down there and with new people and new environments. Fantastic. So tell us more about stone surfboards. Like what yeah. did you learn during this research? So I grew up on the Gold Coast with my father who was Gold Coast born and a lot of his mates and there was the personalities within his friends and his surf community that I don't see today anymore. And it, you get colourful characters that were larger than life and awesome people to surf with, be in the water with. It was jokes today. And then you go to the surf today and you've got 150 people in the lineup fighting for one wave. And it's just, it's a different... It's tragic. It's, it's bad. It's so bad. So I, I've seen both sides of it and struggled to see why there is a contradiction if you've got these environmental people that are tr so adamant about keeping the ocean beautiful and all this stuff, but yet they're building surfboards out of foam, petrol-based materials every day. And, and more and more are being used and they're being built lighter and they're more prone to be broken and they're high performing boards that are sold to novices that don't actually need high performing boards. So you've got this basically cycle of um, creating this lightweight, perfect surfboard that doesn't last a long, long time and you're selling it in the masses to someone that doesn't suit. Mm. And you've, it just, it's ruined surfing culture to, in my eyes. So I wanted to try and find a way to make the surfboard the center point of surfing again and have more than just something you ride for six months, it turns yellow, you throw it in the bin when it snaps. So I wanted a board that could be constantly repaired without destroying the character of the board or the performance of the board and something you can actually show your friends and go, hey, look what I'm surfing, this is a little bit weird, doesn't really perform as well as the best board, but hey, it's a lot of fun mm. and it's different and it, it's me. So it was about creating surfboards that meant a lot more to the person that rode it rather than just having a bigger billabong sticker or some, something yeah. on it that aligned them to a certain class of people or select group or subculture yeah. where this board, the stone surfboard, could actually separate you from a collective and you could start to stand out as an individual and encourage other people to step away from that brand recognition surfing culture. Yeah, absolutely. So tell us about the materials you used and how you sort of decided on, yeah. on using these natural materials in many respects and also how you think from a mindset point of view that can then show these individuals that it is possible to innovate in this area perhaps in a way that does use more sustainable materials. Well, it all started out as a joke. Let's make a surfboard of rocks. Like It was, it was simply as that and it, we lo I locked onto this with my dad one time and making that the joke and actually making the joke successful which it basically drove the whole project just out of purely, I just want to make a board that floats it's made from rocks. Like It seemed like a fun idea and something strange and out of the world. So I just kept trying to do it and do it. And growing up doing tiling and working with stone products and stuff, it sort of came second nature. To, had the tools, the correct tools to use already. Yep. And it sort of just fell into place. And because and I had a bunch of people tell me I couldn't do it along the way. No, it won't work, it won't work. And that was an excellent driver. Yeah, yeah just to prove people wrong. And it, it goes a long way to push me. So there was a few challenges that came with it. Collecting, essentially, to be able to go back to the same way the Hawaiians 
established surfing where they chopped down the trees on the foreshore and built their boards mm. by the ocean. Yep. So now you can go collect pumice stone from the ocean or the foreshore and start to build your own board. You don't have to go to a blank factory and buy a big chunk of petroleum foam to start with. Yep. So if you want to enter the DIY surfboard shaping, that would be your first point of call. You'd go buy a blank that's been shipped across the country and it's or it's got a huge carbon footprint already and then you start. But if you can pick the stuff up off the beach, you just remove that whole first step. And and not only you take taking that negative environmental part out of it, mm. you're creating a new industry of innovation where people can share the way they are learning about shaping these new boards and they might add something else but pumice stone to mm. it. That was just my first take on it. The whole casting process can be done with a multitude of materials and yep. that's what I want to see be done so someone else to take it a step further yep. and take it in a new direction and hopefully that can snowball into a lot of people trying to cast their own boards out of all sorts of wacky stuff. Yeah and I imagine build a stronger emotional connection with that board to then want to keep it for a long amount of time yeah. to tell a story with it. Yeah so I did break one of the boards in the process of designing it um, and the best thing is I, it repairs and you can't see the damage. I personally can look for it and see the fine little crack, but the way the board was put together and the, the imperfections in the actual surface uh, just create creates an aesthetic that you can add on to it and mm. improve and create more character within. So you spoke about snapping the board when you're testing it. What have been some of the key challenges you've come up against on this project until now? So collecting the stones from the ocean, was the, that was easy, great, but having them completely dry. So dehydrating the actual stones from the get-go was one of the things that I didn't quite tackle properly the first time, yep. which caused, because um, I ended up sealing the stones before I cast them. I actually sealed all the wet moisture and Inside. the weight in each stone, mm. which created a lot more weight throughout the board. So the following board, I, I heated all the stones to begin with and lost about 30% of the weight. So there was a huge advantage in just that one step that I mm. missed in the first time. But after breaking it and repairing it, find out it was better when they repaired. It was all just a process. Yep. It got to where I needed it to be. Yeah, fantastic. So stepping into design education, you've just finished yourself a bachelor degree. So what do you believe design education could change to help give students a stronger understanding of some of the, the social and environmental issues and problems that we're facing in the world? as well as forming designers which don't just understand these issues, but are, are proactive about trying to tackle them. Yeah, well, I, I see it from more of, you don't have to be obsessed with policy or politics, but following where the new infrastructure projects are or where money's been allocated to, you can start to understand who's who has the power within policy. And if you don't agree with one of those policies that has been implemented, like its root, the reason for them to implement the policy is actually contradictory to the root problem, which mm. is often the case because they allocate funds to something that's quantifiable. So take roads, for instance. You've got full roads, you need more roads. You don't need less cars in the eyes of death. So if you could solve the car problem, you'd solve the road problem, but they just put more roads. Yeah. So if you come across policy that's implemented by government or whatever that you disagree with, I feel design has the ability to undermine that and have a stab at that policy. So if you can create a product that still supports the root problem but disregards the incorrect policy in your eyes, I think you've taken a step to actually take design further and actually have a power within it to mm. make some sort of change rather than just sitting back idly and watching 
the powers that be just do whatever they want. Yeah. Place. So do you think there could be a, a bit of a space there for students to delve a little bit more into politics and policy and understanding where those dollars well, are being spent, yeah. where the voices are? I think that that's a huge part about design, not just industrial interior, whichever discipline of design. You, you can have a set of rules that people tell you to adhere to, but that's a constraint that you're going to only get the result that they're bordering you to. Until you can step outside of these rules, you don't have to be break the law or you just got to challenge these rules and keep the people that are making them accountable for these rules. Mm. So I guess there's a lot of power in that. Yeah, fantastic. So what advice would you give then to the design students listening who are keen to use their future careers to generate a better world? Just keep researching. Like the more reading I do, the more I find out I don't know nothing. <laughs> like, there's always someone out there that can give you a piece of information that'll put two things, A, person A and person B said a year apart, it'll just click and then everything comes together and you're like, hey, that all makes sense now. And the people around you may not have had those connections yet. They mm -hmm. may they may still have them, but yeah. it's about making those connections before other people and acting on them. Yeah, you can make the connections and if, if you don't act, it's pointless. You've got to make those connections and actually do something, step yeah. out and have a go. If you fail, so be it. Yeah. We're young, it doesn't matter. Mm. Start again. Definitely a difference between talking and doing there. Yeah. So what inspiring projects or initiatives have you come across then recently which you believe are creating some really great positive social change? Yeah, well, I've recently got, into, after being at BMW and going into the digital side of things, I've been looking a lot at blockchain technology. And I was always going to go here with this. <laughs> but there's a project called Trigger, which essentially in America we've got this problem with the Second Amendment and gun rights. And there's this challenge of... Again, back into policy, can, do we have a blanket rule that says no guns or do we have a blanket rule that says only certain people can have guns or whatever? But with new technology and you can have different security measures on firearms where you have fingerprint recognition. And so in the case of a home invasion in America, for instance, if uh, someone has a gun to protect themselves, they have the chance of that gun being turned on them and shot themselves. So now new tech says there's a fingerprint that on there that only you can shoot the gun. Now they can't take the gun and shoot it back at you. But now you have this data being stored. So then that's where the whole thing falls apart. Because if a central organisation holds this data, it, it's a weakness and they can corrupt it. They can do whatever they want with it. So where blockchain comes in, it's a decentralised ledger where all that data can't be manipulated. So I see this project being a way to find a middle ground between, I guess, reform within the American legislation or however they want to put it. But... I guess allows I don't know people to remain in control of their firearms or whatever, but they're a little bit more accountable um, without having the overarching governance or uh, centralized network that says, "Okay, this person shot that." You you got to leave a lot of trust in that network, but technology can remove that trust you need to leave within a single person. That makes sense to me. It was, yeah. it was just recently that we published an article with Carlos Monteverde who was talking about blockchain and describing a lot more about that. So uh, the listeners can also head to that article and, and get a stronger understanding, but it's certainly got a lot of potential yeah. um, and it's going to be really, really interesting to see how it disrupts so many different industries, yeah. not just the financial ones, right? Yeah, it has, like, because of this whole, they talk about a bubble or whatever, that 100% is aspects of it that is a bubble. Like, that, they're making money out of thin air. But if you can find a project that has a real use case and will this be around in five years' time, is it still relevant? 
then they, they've got some legs and I feel that this trigger project has a lot of legs. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, so to finish off then, could you please recommend a few great books or resources to the listeners? Yeah, I, I don't read a lot of uh, books as, as such. I do a lot of research and reading online. I spend a lot of time on Reddit, 4chan of all places. People disregard that, but it, reading sentiments a, a lot to be taken. Like, people can tell you one thing, but if you look at how people are describing things when they believe they're not being watched, you can take a whole different a different take on what they say and read into the reasons behind what people are saying rather than just the upfront mm. communications they're giving. Yeah. So for those people that have never visited Reddit, how does Reddit work? Or so yeah, it's a, a, an online forum where people can talk to each other without being seen. It's not anonymous like 4chan is or anything like that, but you get groups of people that are talking passionately about a single thing and you can start to to read that sentiment again and how people perceive you know, basic ideas and then sure an idea may be great but will it be accepted by a collective of people and these are the people that are talking about it, are the same people often that need to be accepting it so it, it's the best sort of research you can do they're, they're target market talking about the product that they mm. want and it's a very powerful place to be I think. Fantastic. Okay, well, there's been some really great insights today, David. Thanks so much for sharing your time and your experience, and we really wish you the absolute best down in Melbourne. We'll look forward to following you on your journey. Thanks very much, Tom. Thanks for listening to Impact Boom. You'll find links to the initiatives, people, and resources mentioned in this podcast on impactboom.org. Please leave your comments below, and remember, we'll be publishing fresh inspiration and insights to help you create positive impact every week on the website, Facebook page, and Twitter.